This podcast was recorded on June 8th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, we sit here the morning of June 8th, and we have a special guest with us, uh, someone who has been talking about the forthcoming uh, recession that we are in today, Mr. David Rosenberg, Chief Economist and Strategist of Rosenberg Research and Associates. Welcome, Dave. It's great to be on. It's, I think, five months since we last got together. Seems like five years, but uh, lots to cover and Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, well, I mean, for putting out your daily missives, they're they're pretty long these days. And so we got to hop into some of those prescient talkets as today we just heard from the MBER uh, that we're officially in a recession as of February. Before we do that, uh, just because we're doing these weekly updates, I wanted Sam to give us an update on what he saw across risk markets last week, a very strong uh, performance across almost most markets. So, Sam, why don't you let, give us an update there and then we'll jump right in with Dave because I know everybody's waiting to hear from him. Yeah, and I think strong is the right word to use there. So let's throw out some uh, data points through the close of business last Friday, June 5th. So that short month-to-day period for the S&P 500 saw a gain of 5%. Uh, If you take a look at the screens today on a uh, total return basis, the S&P 500 looks to be positive. We'll see. um, It looks like it closed there as well. So Uh, Positive on a year-to-date basis. The Barclays aggregate, uh, U.S. Ag, it was down 50 basis points on that month-to-date, up 5% for the year. Gold front-month futures down 3.5%, up 10% for the year. LME copper up about 6% for the month-to-date and down 8% for the year. WTI front-month futures up 11.5% for that five-day period, still making it a down negative 35% 35% though for the year to date. With regards to sovereign, sovereign yields on the 10-year treasury, it closed out at uh, 90 basis points. Uh, the 10-year boon down 30 basis points, uh, which is uh, up about 15 basis points from where we began uh, the, the end of last month, uh, so May 31st. And JGB's 10-year up four basis points to four basis points. Finally got off that zero, huh? Yeah, bounced off that zero a little bit on the back of some of the strength that we've seen in uh, risk assets. So we'll see what if this trend continues. Uh, Going over the cash spreads on some of the the areas of credit for the IG market, it's at 145 in 30 basis points uh, over um, end of month of May. High yield up, or sorry, in uh, 100 basis points over that short period of time. That's at 550 basis points. So in 100 basis points over five days, that's in 200 basis points over the the preceding month too. So definitely a a, a bit of a risk rally there, spread through spread tightening. Um, Emerging markets at 370 and that's in 60 basis points. Well, you mentioned the high yield market too. We finally have seen some strength in the lower rated credits. There's starting to be some uh, bid out there for those triple C rated assets. So they're still probably 12 to 15% off 
uh, the highs of the year. They're definitely starting to finally catch some of that bid. So um, I think that leads us in right into the discussion here. I mean, uh, I think the first thing I want to ask you, uh, Dave, uh, I, I, I know everybody calls you Rosie, but let's, let's go formal. Let's go Dave <laughs> this morning and let's talk about the NFP report, you know, non-farm payrolls from Friday. I really want to get your take on that. Uh, we saw, you know, the ADP number on Wednesday with private payrolls, uh, that data set, which typically is noisy. We always talk about it showed uh, a, a less job losses and really expected a, a big gap in the numbers. People kind of dismissed that. Then we saw the jobs report on Friday where there was an expectation of seven and a half million jobs lost in the economy over the month of May actually turn out and, and print a number of two and a half million jobs added during that month. So I want to, first of all, get your take on that. What do you interpret in that data? I know you look through the data set. What are you seeing in there? And, um, you know, there's been a lot of optimism about that number. How, how do you interpret it? Well, look, uh, I think you have to take a look at the uh, employment data on Friday uh, in a certain context, because it wasn't just uh, the claims and continuing claims and ADP, uh, you know, ADP uh, coming in, uh, uh, you know, better than expected with like almost a three million uh, private sector job loss right. uh, shows you how far we've come. Uh, but I mean, every single, you know, PMI number, every single anecdotal piece of evidence on the labor market for the month of May uh showed continued erosion uh nothing like we saw in april of course but uh the problem with uh, the employment numbers and the bls told us already uh we had reporting irregularities uh you know people uh reporting into and this is basically equivalent to 4.8 million people telling the bureau of labor statistics uh that they weren't really unemployed because they just thought they were temporary furlough and in fact they were unemployed so we had that particular situation. We had another situation where with both the payroll and household surveys, uh, the sampling was lower than is normal, especially in the household survey where most of the ratios come from. Uh, so there's a sampling problem, irregularity problem. And then the one thing that, that we know, uh, which is a glitch, is that at the end of April, we all know that the government uh, bribed the business sector and said, hey, you know, we will basically turn those loans into grants if you uh, bring back your workers and you didn't fire anybody. So there you had this tremendous financial incentive. And so and so that's what happened. And that's why there's that disconnect between the claims numbers and the payroll numbers is that companies were incentivized, even though there might not have been any work for them to do, bring them back on the payroll because the government's going to turn uh, the water into wine or, in other words, the PPP loans into grants you hang on to these people for eight weeks. We'll see what happens in eight weeks' time. But businesses were bribed, do you see what I'm saying, yeah. to yep. bring back their workers in the month of May. So there's not really much more to say. It had nothing to do with the economy. had more to do with what the government did on this quid pro quo at the end of April. So uh, I've seen this, you know, I saw a lot of research this weekend and in my box uh, this morning talking about this just corroborates the V-shaped recovery. The stock market was right all along. Uh, we were all too uh, bearish on the uh, worker, and this shows that uh, this is anecdotal evidence that there is a V-shaped uh, recovery underway. What's your take on that? So um, let me get this straight. We um, we recoup one-tenth of the carnage in one month on an extremely spurious piece of jobs data. So the temerity of to say there's a V-shaped recovery because uh, we get two and a half million jobs back from over 20 million lost in the previous two months uh, is um, 
I would say uh, disingenuous with a capital D. Uh, <laughs> unless you believe there's a vaccine coming and coming soon, there's right. no V shape. There's no V shape recovery. Uh, that's just basically pure fantasy. And it's an attempt by the bulls, and I'll tip my hat that they got the call right, but as usual, they try and fit the narrative to the price action. Here's what's driving the equity market. Uh, there are hopes of V-shaped recovery. Uh, the hopes of the V-shaped recovery were already in train before Friday's number. Uh, there's a lot of hope out there. I think it's false hope, uh, but I do. Uh, I, I hope there's a vaccine coming out tomorrow. But the market's telling you that they expect the vaccine to come be announced that it'll be credible, uh, effective past uh, the uh, third phase uh, of the trials, and that that's going to be good to go by the end of the year in terms of distribution. That's what the market believes right now. Yeah, uh, and um, and so there's that aspect uh, to what we're seeing, and um, and on top of that, I can't see why you would take a coincident indicator like employment and say, well, that's telling me what's going to happen in the second half of the year. We have a lot of hopes over a vaccine. Uh, maybe that's the V. The V recovery stands for vaccine. But let's face it: this is the mother of all liquidity rallies that we've ever seen. So I say to these people that think this is about the economy, it's not about the economy. It's not about the recovery. We never had a V-shaped recovery from 2009 to 2019. It went down to the weakest economic cycle of all time. We didn't have a V-shape. You didn't have to have a V-shaped recovery. For your fork, for your for for you to become bullish in the last cycle, it was just a huge cycle of financial engineering, uh, the biggest debt for equity swap of all time that took the share count of the S and P down to a slow level in 20 years. So really, that whole cycle from 09 to 19, the stock market became a commodity. Um, you know, weakest economic cycle of all time, and about the most powerful bull market of all time. So why do these people feel they have to tell you it's about a V-shaped economic recovery? Uh, the 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 stock market and the economy became divorced a decade ago. So uh, you know, talk talk to me about uh, oh, this is about a V-shaped recovery. The Fed has done more in its balance sheet expansion in three months than it did through the first six years of the Great Recession and its aftermath. Uh, it's so, amazing to say that too, because it's not just the amount they did in aggregate, but also the timing of it that it was done, you know, uh, in in less than two months, right? Yeah, and, and more to the point, you know, if you go back since the middle of March, uh, M two uh, is up two and a half trillion dollars. The Fed has juiced the system so much uh, that they have boosted M two money supply. By two and a half trillion dollars in a three month span. It's never happened before. And what do you know that the market cap of the S&P 500 has gone up in that same time period by two and a half trillion dollars. So let's see, what is the correlation here? The correlation is basically the Fed once again doing everything it can to uh, inflate asset markets. And it's been very successful. So this is actually all about Fed-induced liquidity. Uh, I'll make no bones of the fact that maybe we'll get some sort of recovery. I mean, between fiscal and monetary policy, I mean, we've driven a 2 to $3 trillion hole in GDP this year. But these repeated rounds of fiscal and monetary stimulus have been gargantuan. So right. it could be that the market's doing the math and saying, hey, you know what? We may well come out of this with more money in people's pockets. I mean, money that grew on trees, by the way, not money that was driven by productivity or organic economic activity. This is borrowed funds. 
from the federal government being put in a people's pockets. You had yeah. there is a requirement. You had to have a pulse, right? One, and you had to have a bank account. And those that didn't have bank accounts, they figured out a way to try to get you debit cards as well. So I think it's I, I think that's a key distinction too that you're talking about here because so many people talk about it as a stimulus, but this doesn't reek anything of a stimulus. You said it's just delivering. It's a transfer payment, right, from the government to people. Well, it's a it's a transfer payment of uh, gargantuan proportions because, you know, we we saw we saw what happened um, in April uh, was a real case in point. You know, April, which is a month that we lost more than twenty million jobs, personal income soared ten and a half percent, or nearly two trillion dollars in the same month. Right. Uh, and that was even with a $740 billion plunge in wages and salaries. Because what happened is that the government doled out $3 trillion of handouts in the form of income transfers of all kinds. Think of $3 trillion of handouts at an annual rate. Um, so that's why you could generate this artificial income. The government, you see, the government has got this collective guilt. They told people to stay at home, they shut down businesses in the name of the greater good because of the pandemic. And the guilt of having to do that has caused them to, to turn the fiscal and monetary uh, stimulus uh, just into massive steroid fashion here. We've never seen anything like this. Um, well, on I that mean, point, too, you have the president talking about the new phase, right? Is it, I don't I forget if it's at phase four of stimulus now, uh, but they're talking about even after, you know, taking the victory lap, lauding the success of the jobs report, out of the next breath, talking about the next stimulus is coming, right? Or the next transfer payment, however you want to classify, is coming. Oh, they're, look, they're they're not stopping. I mean, that was the three trillion dollar, uh, you know, package that came out of the house. I don't think uh, um, all of it will see the light of day, but uh, yeah, th there's no doubt we're going to have more fiscal stimulus. Powell already told us at the last press statement, press conference, that uh, past the point of recovery, the Fed is not going to stop. Because these people feel so guilty, don't you see? There was no bad actors in all this. Uh, you know, never mind that we had the most overextended corporate balance sheets of all time, but there was no bad actors. This was a natural event. It was like a hurricane. We, you know, this was, uh, we forced people to shut down. So we do everything we can uh, to give all these people, you know, income bridge financing. But they're going so overboard because of their collective guilt. It's incredible. Over half of the people that are getting benefits today are making more money than they were pre-pandemic. And the government's not going to stop, Like, let alone the fact that it's a November election coming up and the incumbents want to get reelected, I'm going to assume. Um, but we have a situation here where it's uh, you know no holds barred, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. I started in this business in the mid-1980s when all people talked about were debts and deficits. That's all they talked about. And today it's basically, you know, who cares? So it's hard to believe that uh, everybody was talking about, you know, modern monetary theory, MMT, um, you know, that'll never happen. Or if it happens, it'll happen under a Democrat president. Well, it's, it's already started, basically. The Fed is de facto monetizing these debts. Uh, and uh, my expectation is that this is going to continue. So for the people that say, oh, there's some V-shaped recovery, this is not some organic recovery we're seeing. This is a, a money-financed, a uh, massive public sector debt run-up uh, that's facilitating this illusion of some sort of recovery. Then you've got to go on the other side of the mountain and say, well, who's going to pay for this? You see, I'll say this much. In the 1930s, think what you want about FDR 
and there's lots of controversy, and especially around the New Deal. But the New Deal didn't pay people to sit at home and do nothing. The New right. Deal actually put people to work, right? Like, we basically, you know, we built the Triborough Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Golden Gate Bridge, Route 66, Mount Rushmore, the Hoover Dam, all the waterworks in Michigan and Pennsylvania, all that real infrastructure. Well, back then, of course, we had a workforce that did work with their hands. Right. Uh, and so the thing is that by 1938, with the tax increases and the payback from all the infrastructure, the U.S. government was back actually in the balance by 1938 and never ran a deficit greater than 7% of GDP. We're going to triple that this year. So right. There's a big difference. Yeah, there's a big difference between that point, right? Like investing it and trying to put people back to work versus essentially mailing people checks so that they can continue to eat as well as pay their pay their mortgages and their rents. Uh, and again, that's that's good for living, but it's not it doesn't have this multiplier effect. And that's why I was saying, you know, it's more of a plug the gap experiment than necessarily calling it some form of stimulus. I guess it's stimulus in the fact that you're borrowing money and sending it out, but you shouldn't expect to see any velocity or turnover on it. Isn't that, isn't that how you think about it? That's exactly. Look, it's it's it, there's no this this is all just basically a a uh, debt financed uh, money transfer. You know, look, it's it's basically everybody talked about the great the great corporate tax cuts of 2018. It's going to give us this great escape velocity in the economy. We're going to have massive capex. We had these historic tax cuts in 2018, right? Yep. And look what happened. Capital spending was in recession last year. You know, this is what, when everybody says to me, oh, well, I can't wait to get back to the pre-pandemic economy. Bring us back to the pre-crisis economy. You know, be careful what you wish for. You know, interestingly, today, today, you know, the NBR didn't tell us today, oh, the recession began in April or March. No, it's actually started in February which was before the lockdowns and came to fruition of everything I was talking about was that this economy was always operating in such a high degree of fragility. And if you look at most of the three month trends and everything from real retail sales to industrial production to core manufacturing orders, you could see things were really starting to cool off even before the pandemic hit. And what makes it added intrigue into all this is that all the things that we figured out, like we figured out, like we we shut, what did we shut down? We had to leave the essentials open. The essentials were open, but the non-essential part of the economy was closed down. How did we ever know that 80% of GDP was non-essential? I call this the non-essential economy. Go figure that. That's rather incredible that we went into this situation, let's see, with, we were told at the upper levels of politics, the best economy of all time. And that we want to return to the best economy of all time, three and a half percent unemployment rate, 50 year low. Look at where we created these jobs. Right. Restaurant, you know, and basically low value added, low skilled, low educated consumer cyclicals. So instead of creating a, 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 a nation of scientists and engineers and educators, we created a nation of burger flippers and bar bus boys and, and, and bartenders. And, and so that's really, what's really incredible here. Uh, is the sort of economy that we actually had. How is it possible we could have had the tightest labor market in the 50 years? And yet we know ex post that over half of the household sector, over half of American households, didn't even have enough liquidity on hand, enough cash or savings on hand to get them through, God forbid, three months of a crisis. Right. That no, says I mean, a lot right there, right? About the it, sort of economy people want, are longing to go back to. Yeah, well, I think people forget about what it was. I think this lockdown and 
having people at home for so long has really kind of distorted, um, you know, we, we tend to call it, you know, revisionist history, right? People look back and think it's a whole different experience what they actually went through. But if you think about this in the recovery, and, you know, there are signs of some small recovery, at least off the lows. Um, but if we get there, what do you think it looks like as we get to the end of the year? I mean, can we even get back to like 85, 90% capacity? Do you think it's a higher number? Uh, do you think we can get back there? I mean, it just seems to me that there's a lot of expectations that it's everything's just fine because we've seen the bottom, you buy the dip, you move on. Well, look, I, I can understand that, you know, the stock market will operate on second derivatives. Yes. So they'll operate basically on things becoming less bad. And uh, the, it's not the first time the market's done that. The market will move on the rate of change, the change of the rate of change. Yeah, in the last the, crisis, it was called green shoots, remember? Green shoots well, was the phrase they used. Well, so. that's what I'm trying to say is that, is, is that, is, is that the stock market, um, if you believe that there's a V-shaped recovery, you have to believe that, that as the economy reopens, the demand is going to come back uh, that's going to allow companies to expand, uh, to rehire. And um, that's only going to happen, if you ask me, if we actually get a vaccine. We already know what I'm trying to say is that the NBER told us that the recession started in February. We know for a fact that real GDP contracted 5% in the end rate in the first quarter. People were starting to become cautious before the lockdowns. Okay, then we had the lockdown and the vertical down, and there's going to be some natural reflex rebound in the third quarter. The question is, are, is demand going to follow the reopening, the supply side of the economy? And that's not going to happen. People, you know, most people are going to stay very, very cautious right. on going out and being in crowds, and that's going to affect uh, wide swaths of the consumer cyclical service industry um like for all the people talking about a v-shaped recovery how could you be calling for a v-shaped recovery uh is baseball opened up again even for fans or basketball or any sporting anything related well, they have they like have in korea, the sports? Dave, they, in korea they have it and they feature? have and they have stuffed animals in the audience it's a great photo if you see it they've actually put stuffed animals behind the plate it's well the stuffed cool. animals you see aren't buying beer popcorn and hot dogs <laughs> you know that's that, that's the problem so you can put them in for aesthetics but the whole notion look you know and you know the whole notion of a v-shaped recovery uh you know to me is totally ridiculous and the reality is that a liquidity-driven stock market, a stock market that is basically on steroids because of the central bank, popping in so much money into the system, um, you, you don't need to have a V-shaped recovery. We, we never got a V-shaped recovery. We had the weakest recovery of all time for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, 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 and we have one of the most powerful bull markets. So these people that are saying it's a V-shaped recovery... Um, you know, I don't think the stock market's maybe even telling you that. The stock market's telling you that we have the mother of all liquidity rallies. We're back to Tina. We're back to FOMO. We're back. We've had a nine-point multiple expansion in a matter of three months. I mean, that never happens. We're, we're back, actually. The last time the stock market was at today's level, you said that basically the S&P is now fractioning up for the year. We're back to where we were last October. Well, last October, the unemployment was 3.5% not 13 and change. But last October, the Ford multiple was 17. Today, the Ford multiple is 24. So basically, uh, you know, you're paying more than 
be well, active in the stock market compared to where the last time. That's that's a bit of a high price to pay. But again, the liquidity spigots are on full full tap. And I think that the day that the Fed says enough is enough, and I don't know when that's going to be, at some point Powell will say enough is enough, and then the trap door opens up again because we know this is not about a V-shaped recovery. By the way, if there is a V-shaped recovery, it only happens under one circumstance, and that is that we get a vaccine. Because only when we get a vaccine do we get the confidence back in the system that will allow the consumers to come back in full droves. It won't happen before then. Yeah, I took a flight last week, Dave, and uh, there was a whopping 27 people on it. So uh, there was some nice physical distancing taking place there. But, you know, as, as you think about this, too, and you talk about liquidity-induced rally, I think it's important, too, to look at how it's affected other asset prices, too. Uh, here we have corporate bonds, as Sam mentioned at the top, 150, 145 basis points is the OAS. So that's the spread you get paid for taking the default risk. That level is back to, like, early March levels. And so, in fact, yields are even lower because of the Treasury rally. So when you look across other sectors of the market, people focus a lot on the stock market. But you think about lending to corporations, we're talking about high yield bonds. Uh, I think Sam quoted 550 uh, being the spread today on high yield. So when you think about that, it, it's almost like the markets in general are saying that, you know, there's gonna, not going to be a problem with solvency, um, that liquidity is going to be the end all be all. You mentioned uh, Jay Powell. Jay Powell talks about, you know, that the Fed will do whatever it takes almost. I mean, that's, that's channeling his inner draggy, I guess. But, um, uh, but he did say that there's no limits to QE. And so is this an environment where it's all about just liquidity, printing money, and maybe investors should be trying to follow this train? I mean, it's a very dangerous way of just hoping there's a backstop. But I, I use the reference point of them buying ETFs uh, through the liquidity facilities. People are like, oh, the Fed's got my back if I buy fallen angels and the likes. But the Fed spent $4 billion on a $10 trillion debt market, and people assume that they have their back. What do you make of all that when it comes to the debt markets and how over-levered they were going into this and the amount of issuance in that space to uh, year to date, or at least you know post-COVID, has been massive. There's been over a trillion dollars of issuance in the IG market itself. So what do you make of debt markets, too, looking here? Because you're not paying for a multiple. You're just hoping to get paid back. Look, it's... Um... You know, it's, it's in the in the legal system. There's something called mens re, which is intent, and uh, intent is as important in uh, the uh, law profession as the actual act. So it was no different than when the Fed did uh, what they're talking about right now, which is uh, their next step would be uh, yield controls, yield curve control strategy, where they cap interest rates out the curve. Uh, they did that from 1942 to 1951. Just the threat that the Fed would, would would buy bonds to cap interest rates. They never had to buy one bond. The threat was so credible. So the Fed comes out. Uh, the you see, they came out the day before Good Friday, timed it perfectly for a six million plus jobless claim numbers at 8:30. At 8:30 on that Thursday, I believe it was April the 9th. It was. It came was. out with that announcement. Am I right on the date? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, Friday they was come April out 9th. With that, okay, yeah. Well. Where they're gonna they're, they're gonna basically threaten, or they basically said this is what we're gonna do. All right, so uh, all the way from CMBS to 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 uh, corporate credit to uh, to high yield ETFs. Uh, look, everyone knows I think that financial assets in general have become a casino. Look, there's there's no more true price discovery or risk assessment. Uh, Jay Powell is the dealer handing out chips for free. So I think it's just as you said, we have a mentality now perpetuated by the Fed. It's called heads you win, tails we bail you out. That's the psychology. But I'd say yep. that we still have to assess 
as analysts what is true intrinsic value. Uh, the Fed may have your back, but it can't stop anyone from figuring out really what the risks and rewards really are. So from my lens, high yield is not high yield when the HYG ETF yields 5 to 6%, especially when you consider the default wave that's coming. I mean, let's face it, May was a horrible month for credit downgrades. For anything you're going to say about this V-shaped recovery, look at the credit downgrade to upgrade ratio in the month of May. I've said this before. It's not called high spread. It's called high yield. You need more yield to take on quasi-equity risk. So relative value becomes meaningless when the Fed is basically threatening to buy everything except equities. You know, I looked, high yield has averaged 9% over the past three decades. High yield averages 13% in recessions. Investment grade averages 5% in the past, 6.5% in recessions. And the bottom line is that you have to have a hurdle rate for investments. And they have become totally distorted. I don't know. I think high yield, I know what you guys think. I think high yield should be at least 8% since it's quasi equity. But you see, rates are zero. The Fed has your back. So, really, most of high yield right now is at 5%. And um, I find that truly amazing. You know, relative yeah, value against a broken price discovery system. What happens here is that that becomes the crutch upon which. The weak rely on to justify totally absurd behavior. So yeah, the Fed is making it hard to own risk assets right now uh, with any degree of moral, intellectual, or economic base grounding. I cannot believe the rationale I'm hearing. I hear V-shaped recovery. Come on, give me a break. But yeah, I'd say, I, you know, high yield is totally mispriced. And I said before, it's called high yield, not high spread. To lend to a single B, you need 8%. <laughs> Not a 600 basis point spread on zero rate treasuries. Okay. Yeah. So actually, well, we, we had this during the crisis, actually. So post crisis, there was a lot of criticism of lenders in the in the mortgage sector for this exact reason that, you know, we had you had mortgage rates extremely low at the time, uh, you know, talking like 2010, 2011. Uh, they were low because of QE and just everything going on. And then people are saying, well, why aren't people lending to subprime borrowers? Well, and because if you look at the traditional spread, you slap that on and you go, OK, well, that means it should have a six yield and six yield isn't enough to get through a recession. Right. Because you've got it's not just spread, as you mentioned, you got to get paid back. You got to be paid for the amount of defaults you expect through a cycle and subprime is subprime for a reason. Right. You're a serial defaulter. It's not like you had here. But you, if you take that same parallel that you're talking, I take that same parallel to what you're talking about in high yield. Here is that yeah people do it on relative value and I hear this too from you know the people that are bold up on credit is that well in Europe high yield bonds got down to two percent um, you know and that wasn't spread well I guess it was a little higher spread because of negative yields there but they talked about well it's all a relative value game but when you're lending to people you need to make up for the defaults I look at this too kind of in the peer to peer lending and things like that where you know yields were in the you know kind of mid to high single digits. But if you go to the traditional credit card companies that have been through a full cycle, there's a reason they charge 20 handle percent interest rates. You have to be able to weather that default cycle. So uh, I agree wholeheartedly with you that it's amount, it's about the amount of yield, not just some spread to some artificially induced uh, level by the Federal Reserve. Yeah, you, look, you, you need to price risk absolute. And absolute yields are stupidly low right now. Uh, I hope I don't. I really hope I don't assault anybody on the program. Uh, you need to price risk absolute. Absolute yields are stupid low. 
So I say, let the stupid buy it. So, you know, <laughs> I got people coming back to me and they say, oh, oh, uh, if I'm buying an expensive high yield, why not just them buy equities with more upside? And they do it, which right. has been the story in the equity market for the past two months. They say, hey, if I'm buying equities, why not just buy the COVID-19 names and get even more upside? By the way, that's worked. But so you see, the, the value cycle trade is back, uh, just like it's correlated with what's happening in high yield. Uh, the value reflationary cycle trade is back. So they're buying the cruise ships, they're buying the retailers, they're buying the banks. You know, I say, hey, you know, I say this to the advocates of the V-shaped recovery. Yeah, really? Why don't you go tell the 30 million people who are unemployed right now, ask them if they're going to go on a cruise ship or an airplane anytime soon and see what they say. Yeah. Well, I did see the the last cruise ship that was out at sea in the pre-COVID world just landed today. I believe it was in Germany and there was eight people left on it. Uh, it was a 120 day cruise. And uh, I just can't see a lot of people sign up for a 120 day cruise going forward. But let, let's talk about this, too, because we know what the data says. We, we follow it. We love your research, Dave. I, I, we just give kudos to you and your small team, the amount you guys put out. It's awesome. So let's talk about how we think about forward-looking indicators. What are you seeing kind of in the leading indicators? We talked about jobs being a coincidence. What do you see in the leading indicators and thinking about life post-COVID? Where, where do we start? Well, look, it's a, you know, the it's, it's not a traditional business cycle recession. So to be talking about looking at traditional indicators, I think that what you want to be looking at is anything that gives you a feel for consumers coming back out and spending again uh, because I don't think most people realize how thin the margins are uh, in the industries that were most hit by the pandemic and the shutdown. I mean, you look at the whole restaurant industry, they pay 30% on food, 30% on rent, 30% on labor. They have 10% margin. Uh, they, 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 they can't, they can't operate at 50% capacity. I, I, most of them can't operate at 75% capacity. So the most important um, determinant of how things are going to go is going to be demand. There's no doubt that we're going to get a reflux rebound with people coming out. Uh, the weather's turned. Uh, the lockdowns are over in all 50 states, even New York. So there's no doubt we're going to get some sort of reflex of rebound. Um, but the question is, beyond the third quarter, uh, will it be prolonged? And that's going to be dependent on demand. I, I think that anything that you want to look at from that perspective would be, you know, not the coins indicators. Right now, everybody's looking at the daily mobility tracking or what's open table doing on reservations. Um, you know, everybody's looking at the air travel, all coincident indicators. Uh, I think that what you want to look at are spending intention surveys. I think the confidence indicators, as soft as they are, will be stuff to look at. Um, but let the data do the talking. I think if, I, if I'm wrong on this, it's because retail sales are going to go through a 6 to 12-month massive rebound. I'll be wrong because the demand side lags well behind uh, the production side. And that leaves a very high degree of deflationary excess capacity in the economy. It means that um, we don't get a V-shaped recovery, but something that looks more like a square root recovery. But demand is going to be the key. Then the question becomes, uh, what is 
the critical element in triggering the demand. And I think the demand is going to require a complete resolution to what's happened here, which means that it's really all about a vaccine or some effective treatment. And short jobs, of that, short, right? I mean, you can't have you can't have demand without some form of income. And we know the credit expansion's already been there. People are going to have to have incomes, which means you have to be employed um, in order to create that demand, right? I mean, that's just the basic tenet. Yeah. Well, I think that you know, there's there's no question that uh, people have government transfers in their hand. They have government transfers in their hand, but government transfers have a much lower multiplier impact on spending than organic income from the job. They may, uh, they, money you from, may not money, get them, you know, you may yeah, not get them again, right? Well, you, but, but the money from, but the thing is that remember that over half of the households in the country didn't have enough savings on hand to deal with the crisis. Um, that, ha, that, that ends up having a scarring impact uh, and a lingering impact on your spending, saving decisions in the future. We also know that the biggest fear uh, that people had in the mid to lower end of the income strata was feeding their family. So that was very interesting is that, do you remember I told you that even with the detonation to the economy in the month of April, uh, we still had income up uh, over 10% because of the handouts from the government. Uh, but spending, spending was still down 13%. Spending was down everywhere except a few areas. Uh, rent was up. Uh, utilities were up. Delivery services were up. Internet services were up. So anything related to the essentials uh, in terms of what you need. But if you take a look at most spending on virtually everything else that's cyclical, it was way down. So, you know, uh, I just know about all the surveys I was looking at, um, you know, just in the lead up to the um, to the reopenings. And um, it's quite interesting that I was looking at a bank rate survey. Uh, it said that only a third of Americans said they're going to feel comfortable visiting any establishment on the opening months of reopening and a classic, you know, you first sort of message. But I get it. You know, they show on television all these people lining up, all these people partying outside. But only a third of the population said that's what they were going to do. You don't see what the majority is doing. The majority is still operating at a very high level of caution, which means that we're only going to get a partial recovery. Do not see after a detonation that was even worse than what we saw in the Great Depression. We're only going to see a partial recovery. I'm not saying we're not going to see no recovery altogether, but we're going to see only a partial recovery a very painful adjustment post-crisis that's still going to be leaving the economy with double-digit unemployment as far as the eye can see. And I don't know why there's so many disbelievers out there. There's people out there that think that the stock market has the great message on the economy. The stock market really gets a great F on the economy. It's really about liquidity. Nobody talks about actually the people that actually know a thing or two about the economy is the economics team at the CBO. Nobody talks about the CBO. Well, the CBO wasn't telling you about a V-shaped recovery. The CBO economists were telling you to get back. Yeah, the it's CBO. Like 2030, yes, yeah. twenty. Yeah, exactly. well, twenty twenty-eight to get back. Eight years in purgatory. But I guess that the CBO economists are all a bunch of idiots, and the people who buy stock and trade stocks, well, then they know something about the economy that the CBO doesn't. But like I'm saying, when the Fed is printing money at a rate that we've never seen. 
then um, this is what you're going to be getting. And, and I just don't think that it's going to be sustainable. I think it's classic money illusion. This whole rally, as you know, we've got Stan Druckenmiller on today, almost apolo- sounded like he was apologetic. What do you have to be apologized for? We had vertical down. We, we had vertical up. Do, do you know how many of these rallies, the rally we're seeing right now, do you know how many we had? Do you know how many of these we had from 1929 to 1933? Do you know how many of these rallies we had just like this one? Do you know how many we had? No, no. Six. Wow. Six, six rallies just like this. And so everybody is just they just can't see past the tip of their nose. They extrapolate today or last week or the past month into the future. Um, we had vertical down from mid-February to mid-March because we thought there was going to be the Black Death, the Spanish flu. We don't know anything about this. The all the forecasts were that we're going to have hundreds of millions and of deaths, and it was going to be, and we we're never going to reopen the economy once it closed. And of course, all those assumptions. Um, have been laid to rest, and most of them were wrong, not all of them. And now the assumptions are running the other way. It's just basically the volatility and the mania runs in both directions, and that's what we're seeing right now. Well, I want to uh, pick up on a word you used there, or a phrase you used there. You said money illusion, and so um, I recall the the phrase money illusion being to you know people looking at kind of nominal prices versus thinking about kind of it in real terms or inflation adjusted so are you saying uh, by using that phrase are you trying to imply that perhaps there is some form of inflation on the horizon i know we're talking about deflation to start but what are the consequences of all this fed, fed printing it means well it means that once the velocity of money stops going down and stabilizes we're going to get a lot of inflation and it makes sense because at some point demand is going to stabilize uh, demand will stabilize at some point. And this, of course, look, I'm, I'm sort of talking as if, uh, you know, we're, we're having the appetizers and I'm talking about dessert. So this could be a few years away. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Okay. But we will, uh, there is no such thing. I've been in the business 35 years. No such thing in this business as a get it a jail free card. This is only a business of Newtonian physics where every action has an equal and opposite reaction, but there are lags. Yeah. So no, that's so we have to look. We look past the other side of the mountain. Um, yeah, we're going to get uh, inflation, uh, not just from the classic MV equals PY for sharing and identity, the quantity theory money, but at some point aggregate demand will stabilize, and we're going to be left with a a, a regulatory, uh, more flat world shrinking uh, globalization that is going to be cost push inflation. Uh, localized supply chains over globalized supply chains, the corporate cost curve is going to look different. Yeah. And the aggregate supply curve is going to be looking uh, a lot more in a lot more inelastic or sclerotic than it has in the past. So we're going to get supply side inflation. We're going to have a form of stagflation in the future. That much is true. Um, Not a friend to financial assets, but you could argue that would be a friend to real assets. Uh, but the point I'm making is that, you know, one thing I don't hear anybody talking about is productivity. We just talk about the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. I hear nobody talking about productivity. I hear nobody talking about what happened last year, how it was that that heading into this, we had a recession in capital spending. Nobody talks about it. We had a recession in non-residential construction. Nobody talks about it. We had a recession in corporate profits. Nobody talks about it. And of course, what held the glue together uh, was uh, was the consumer. Uh, and then we find out that that's because we went into this in such poor balance sheet shape 
for all the talk, you know, for all the talk about how great household balance sheets are, they're only great because at the peak of the cycle, the Federal Reserve still was hanging on to $1.6 trillion of residential mortgages. You know, <laughs> it was such a bizarre, such a bizarre cycle that at the peak in 2019, the Fed had to cut the funds rate three times and then re-expand the balance sheet. Um, never normalized anything. So how anybody could talk about a normal cycle when the Fed could never normalize interest rates, God forbid we got to 2.5% on the peak of the funds rate in December 2018. We got to 2.5% on the funds rate and the whole system started to to go awry. How is that? How is that a normally functioning economy? Nobody talks about the blow up in the repo market last fall. Where, where did that come from? How is that coincidental with a stable financial system? And then, yeah. of course, who was talking about that? You know, we have a health crisis, morph into an economic crisis, because, of course, well, part of that was locking down well, the 80 percent of the economy called uh, the non-essential economy. But did, I didn't hear anybody. I didn't hear anybody, anybody talking back in uh March that the Fed was going to start buying high yield. Were you guys talking? This is going to get so bad they're going to have to buy the high yield. How did this morph into the worst financial crisis on record? Ten times worse apparently than the Lehman collapse. We took a health crisis, morphed it into a recession, and then it became the worst financial crisis of all time because once again another cycle of excessive leverage. I cannot believe when I hear. When I hear the people at the Fed talk about there are no bad actors this time around. Well, if there are no bad actors this time around, why are you bailing out credit yeah. hedge funds? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I no mean, that, that's you'd mentioned it on April 9th. You know, I think they were looking at the abyss and knowing that that jobs report, or at least the unemployment claims report was going to be so bad um, that they wanted to do something in here. And that it was jawboning. I, I agree with that. But you talk about no bad actors. The one thing you've written a lot about was zombie companies. I mean, aren't we just creating a zombie system if we're essentially going to go out and support spread levels and support yield levels out there and just saying that, like, you know, look, we don't care about your your solvency. Uh, Just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, We'll support the market in a way to keep you functioning, even though you probably shouldn't function in a capitalist society. Well, it's um, it's what I said before. And it and the answer to your question is yes uh but you know we 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 started doing this 30 years ago we're just cycle after cycle of dealing with crises that have at their heart excessive debt i was i was really uh playing devil's advocate before when i said how did this turn into such a gargantuan financial crisis it's because we allowed companies to issue debt to buy back stock on a scale we've never seen before now it's a free country and uh, free capitalism. But what does it say about an economy and about an incentivized system where companies issue debt to buy back their stock and not go through a capital expenditure cycle? How does that make any sense? When I went to economic school, companies issued debt to finance capital expenditure. There was no textbook on we're going to issue debt to buy back our stock. So at least when you actually engage in capital expenditure, um, ipso facto, there will be some long-term productivity payback. No, no comment anywhere. The fact this was the weakest productivity cycle of all time. Weakest productivity cycle of all time. Because yeah. there's no capital. There's no, there, you see, because there's no capital deepening. And, and all, all, we're, all we're talking about is just basically the bull market was in financial engineering. But hey, 
Uh, if I'm in the stock market and my 401k plans, boy, that's just that's just phenomenal. So I I don't quite understand it. Um, we've had not just for the past several months, for the past 12 years, a financial system that's totally divorced from the real economy. Maybe this is why we go into this with these massive gaps in wealth and income inequalities, which maybe now becomes a huge pre-election issue. Maybe is at the heart of uh, you know what these uh, riots and demonstrations were really all about. Uh, maybe producing what is probably going to be an extremely progressive, left-leaning type of platform by the Democrats in this election, and we'll see how that works. That's something else that we didn't talk about: is what happens post Labor Day if we don't have a vaccine, and if we have the polls showing at that point that not only will Biden take the White House, but that the Senate flips Democrat. And then you have to start thinking about what the future of taxation is going to look like. But even without that, who's going to pay for all this largesse? Like, basically, there's only two ways all this debt morass gets paid for. Remember, this was not the debt of the New Deal. Remember, the debt of the New Deal, that was pre-World War II debt. It's striking that by 1938, FDR, whether you love him or hate him, brought the system back into a fiscal balance because that was productivity-induced spending on infrastructure that took place in the 1930s. We didn't just pay people to stay out of work. This is a deadweight drag. Who's going to pay for this? Well, if taxes continue to be a dirty five-letter word in America, then there's only two ways this gets paid for. It's either going to get paid for through a restructuring of the tax system or gets paid on the Fed's balance sheet, okay? That basically we go to outright debt monetization. Well, look, at least the, the, the Bank of England is the best leading indicator. They've only been around since 1694. They're not they're not uh, ashamed to say we're entering into debt monetization. I'm just amazed that gold hasn't broken out to like $3,000 an ounce right now. Everybody's going to be in the same game. And everybody is going to pay for this largesse on the backs of their central bank balance sheets. And yeah. yes, the answer, the, answer, the answer is that. And it's not tomorrow, it's not next month, but that will be inflationary. Okay. Well, Dave, I mean, that's that's totally uh, right on topic, too, given the world we're in today. But given the interest of time, as always, we just never have enough time to listen to you talk because there's so many great ideas and, um, you know, just in general, the, the product you put out. So maybe you could tell our listeners before we jump to Sam's favorite part of the show how they get a hold of you, how they get access to your research, because I think a lot of people out there um, need need to hear these things. I mean, the stuff you write about is just data driven. It's very important, and and it helps people really think about uh, the larger issues versus just hearing the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. So, how do they get a hold of you? How do they get access to 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 your thoughts? Right. Well, you know, as everybody knows, I uh, I started Rosenberg Research uh, in early January uh, of this uh, year, and uh, largely because. For so many years, uh, and especially in the decade that I was on the buy side at Gluskin Chef, uh, I long identified a shortage out there of truly high quality, unbiased research and research that takes the economics uh, to the financial markets and gives investors a degree of clarity that I don't believe they're going to get anywhere else. So uh, that's really my pitch. But having done this for 35 years, on the buy side, sell side, Bay Street, Wall Street, I actually, for the first time, decided I'm going to create my own enterprise, direct the traffic and the research, and uh, it's been absolutely amazing. Um, so uh, I produce two dailies, two weekly special reports, webcast conference calls. Uh, you know, we uh, provide price and product options. I've staffed up, I'd say, with the best macro team I've ever had under my wing. 
I know that's a big statement, but it's 100% true. Um, so the best way to uh, get in touch, uh, well, feel free to call me uh, on my cell phone, uh, 647-802-4146, or email me at uh, drosenberg, drosenberg, at rosenbergresearch.com. Uh, so either one, drosenberg at rosenbergresearch.com. Uh, feel free to go to our our, our website as well, uh, www.rosenbergresearch.com. Uh, or as, as I said before, uh, give me a call on the cell 647-802-4146. And we'd be happy to give everybody who's on the line today a, a free one-month trial uh, for uh, all the research products that we're producing. Well, that's awesome. Not only access to your cell phone, but a free month of research. I don't think we've ever had a guest give out their personal cell phone or at least a cell phone to contact them. So that's great, Dave. Uh, you're just a great guy in general, too, and always find it helpful to have these discussions. So thanks again for stopping by. But before we let you leave, go back to Bay Street. We got to get uh, Sam on for the final part of the show. So, Sam. All right. And that final part of the show is also my favorite part of the show. And that's Sherman Says. Uh, Dave, you know the rules of the road, but here they are again. I will offer a series of prompts alternating between you and Sherman, starting with Sherman first on economic data. Fact. Alternative. <laughs> uh, for you, Dave, uh, deflation. Uh, stagflation. All right. With Sherman, gold. Long term. Dave, fiscal deficits. Future taxes. Value investing. Oh, still out of favor. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say uh, value investing. Um, oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one back to you, Dave, with uh, the U.S. dollar. In trouble. Sherman, ratings downgrades. Prevalent. Momentum. Dave, that's for you. Yeah. <laughs> Pre present day reality. Yeah, what's amazing too, though, I want to I want to take a sidetrack there real quick. Is that if you look at one of the largest traded ETFs out there that does momentum, it's it's sector neutral, it's dollar neutral on it. And if you look at that, it has gotten clobbered in this rally um, just because it is those low performing momentum, the things that have done the worst. It is a mean reversion type of play underway. So for all that momentum talk, you know, people that tried to buy into this momentum ETF to try to capitalize on that um, got a rude awakening and, and found out what mean reversion really looks like. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, Sam, to derail you. No worries. Yeah. Talk is a lot of times easier than the action or the results. Right. So. Going back to you, Sherman, with rising rates. Underway. And the last one to Dave and for the show, retail investors. Keep your cool. I think that's good advice. So that's the way to let's call that a wrap, Sam. So, Dave, once again, thanks for coming on to the show. One more time, give them your cell phone and your email address so that they can uh, incessantly hit you up. Sure thing. Well, uh, 647-802-4146, um, although there was no pizza delivery with that. 
Uh, and uh, the email address is uh, Drosenberg, D. Rosenberg, Drosenberg at RosenbergResearch.com. Awesome. Uh, it's not delivery, it's DiGiorno, as the commercial always says, Dave. So thanks again. I uh, appreciate everyone for listening. Great insights from Dave. Take him up on his offer. Get that free month of research. I think you'll learn a lot from there and realize it's, it's a necessity to have every morning in your inbox. So thanks again, Dave. Uh, thanks for listening to The Sherman Show. You can get us on Stitcher. Uh, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, um, all your favorite providers out there. Even iTunes has it out there. So uh, tune in next week. We'll have another special guest from the outside world, and we appreciate you tuning in. Thanks until next time. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020, DoubleLine Capital.